Welcome to this Change Board Future Talent podcast. I'm Jim Carrick Burtwell, Chief Executive and Co-Founder of Change Board. Today, we present Ruby Wax's keynote speech from Change Board's Future Talent Conference in 2014. A comedian, actor and mental health campaigner, Ruby has lived in the UK since the 1970s and came to prominence in the 80s as a comic interviewer in her shows The Full Wax and Ruby Wax Meets. She holds a master's degree in mindfulness cognitive-based therapy from Oxford University and was appointed a visiting professor in mental health nursing by the University of Surrey in 2015. Ruby outlined the importance of neuroscience in helping us understand our relationships with others, others at work. Ruby outlined the importance of neuroscience in helping us understand our relationships with others at work. She explained how our minds can jeopardise our sanity. To break the cycle, we need to understand how our brains work, rewire our thinking and find calm in a frenetic world. Thanks for listening to this Future Talent podcast. There are many more available to listen to or download on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. Do, do you have something I could stand on? Because I don't want to be dwarfed in front of these people. A box. A box. A box. Yeah, can, can you see me? <laughs> but that doesn't help. No, I don't have a... Okay, obviously people don't know what they're doing here, so... Okay, so um, just to bring you up to date. Okay, uh, when I was growing up in high school in Evanston, Illinois, we always thought that the people who had the best grades became the most successful as far as getting the most powerful jobs. Um, you know, in the past, the people who succeeded would be some guy or woman, <laughs> they weren't there then, uh, from a small town. You know, and if they worked their socks off day and night, uh, they ended up reaping the rewards. You know, he'd end up owning his own business, you know, selling lawnmowers. Uh, this is not true anymore, okay? Now you need an MBA from Harvard just to put on your pants. <laughs> they are the new masters, and unless the lawnmower goes global, the little guy don't have a chance. We've learned that the brightest, who got the straight A's, might also be the very ones uh, that screw us the hardest. They know the math, so they know how to rob the bank. The temptation is too great when you know the algorithms, and we don't even know what that means. That's the human situation we're in now. This is why a guy like Madoff uh, can, uh, you know, amidst all those smart guys, can pull off ripping off everybody for 50 billion. If they were so smart, you, you know, if they're so smart, how come they didn't recognize the guy was a sociopath? I mean, that's like mothers saying to me, you know, when their son is 30, who would know he was gay? And you think, were you not looking at all? <laughs> what were you thinking? So we used to trust these overachievers because they can do so much with their superpowers. They sleep two hours a night. They jog at three in the morning and they have wives who are 13 years old and they have to. <laughs> they go helicopter skiing in Alaska. Not just a double black run for them, they have to leap from a plane. To unwind, I chew a chicken bone in front of the TV. <laughs> they jump off a cliff. P.S. If you're checking out ever who to do business with, ask him what he does to relax on weekends. If they say helicopter skiing, walk away. <laughs> He's mentally off. So I'm saying some leaders are cognitively brilliant, but they have no idea how to connect to their fellow employees or their partners. No one teaches you how to connect at school. Maybe they should. We'd all be a lot safer. 
So the most cognitively brilliant people usually have had to sacrifice their emotional selves, or they didn't have an emotional self to sacrifice. Sorry, I'm, not, I'm being a little cynical here, but um, Asperger's seems to be de rigor, de rigor if you want to get a high spot in the executive ranks. CEO, you got to be autistic. Um, <laughs> they can do that because they have the focus, because things like feelings don't get in the way. By the way, they make terrible husbands, <laughs> even though they're rich. The slogan of our times seems to be, may the best man win no matter how many heads have to roll. Probably if Macbeth were alive today, he would get into the Fortune 500 <laughs> and be on the board of Goldman Sachs. <laughs> A problem these days is that we confuse bravery with bravura. There are motivational speakers out there who are brought in to tell everyone in the organization about how he or she rode across the Atlantic with one arm. How is this helping the company? That person isn't brave, he's nuts. And now these speakers have started to compete with each other to get the job. Apparently someone has climbed Mount Everest using only one nostril. <laughs> Luckily I can't see you, so if you're getting pissed off, I don't care. <laughs> Now there are uh, leadership experts, executive coaches. By the way, in the past, the only time I used the word leader was when I was in Girl Scouts. She was usually the one who got badges for lighting fires and frying a raccoon. But anyway, it's not dissimilar how leaders these days are trained when they have to go on weekend workshops where they have to paintball each other and leave across burning coals to make them better leaders. Uh, there are now coaches who help leaders communicate better to their staff. Uh, their staff who they've never met or didn't even know they existed. I've seen this. The coach trains them how to perform speeches for business rallies in front of their people on a stage. It's hilarious. They advise them things like that they should wear casual clothes, maybe jeans or a baseball cap worn backwards, and should stand with their legs apart to show they're in control, they're manly, even if it's the women. <laughs> to me, it looks like they're taking a piss. Anyway, they're told at the end to maybe crack some awful joke, just to show that they're the same as the people listening, like that's hard. Or even worse, when the leader's up on stage with that PowerPoint in hand, shining the beam on some big graph, you've seen this with green and red squiggly lines going incrementally up. He might be talking about values for the company. I always like that. Most people just want to make a buck. You know, they're blanking out with the values. Anyway, or he's showing some profit tra trajectory, but he doesn't even notice he's put his audience in a coma. Uh, they've also got people now, this is astounding to me, who uh, do courses called Trust and Rapport. Strange, it has to be taught because we come with those qualities. They're hardwired in us at birth. It's in our DNA to bond with each other. But somewhere along the way, we've forgotten how to do it. We start to hunker down in our own silos, and then the gun goes off, and the competition starts, making the hunger game seem like a stroll in the park. I've even, there's even courses now on how to be human. <laughs> Next, we'll have to pay people coaching us on how to sneeze better. <laughs> Obviously, some humanness has gone out the window. What happened was, though, I worked for the home office for two years because they felt the public didn't trust them. Duh. <laughs> At least they got that one right. 
So they brought me in to teach them or tell them how to communicate better because I worked as an interviewer for the BBC for 25 years, so I had some experience in communication. Uh, so the first thing, the first thing I asked was, who were they when they weren't in their suits because nobody trusts a suit? I asked what horrible thing happened to them when they walked into the office and turned into whatever they were, well, dead meat. If, you, if they just brought in the person they are out of the office, the one who meets his friends for drinks or plays frisbee with his kids, or sometimes feels like tearing out his hair from the pressure of work or keeping his job, or has doubts or anxieties, or even feels a little depressed, that really would make other people feel they can trust him, because everybody really feels the same way underneath. Showing a little vulnerability is not a sign of weakness, it's being human. I know, I, I don't know if you remember this, but what helped Obama win the first time round was when he told a member of the press, he said, I don't know the answer to that question. Everybody loved him then, <laughs> before he became a wise guy. <laughs> uh, if we are not aware of our flaws and even express them a little, not too much, okay, because otherwise people think you're nuts <laughs> and take advantage. But if you tell them a little bit about yourself, uh, people will pick up that you're on the same team, and that's, what, that's the only thing that creates trust. I know about all this stuff, about how to you know, communicate or click in with people really quickly, because I do a show uh, where I, you know, I'm, well, I'm giving information, but I'm trying to be funny, and you really have to make people feel comfortable really quick, otherwise they turn on you like a pack of animals. It's unbelievable how quickly, if somebody susses that you're talking down to them, or you know, you've got your monologue ready, they really, it's like wild animals. And so I, I've had to learn to spot that before they spot it. And then I have to, well, start to cool my engines down. And usually it works when I show them something that makes me flawed, or then I talk honestly to them for a minute, and then gradually, gradually, they forgive me, and uh, they even start to like me again. But I have to do that, otherwise my children don't have shoes, so. <laughs> Anyway, another, another way I had to learn to connect with people was by doing those interviews for B, at the BBC for 25 years. And in the beginning, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I just blagged my way into the job. So I'd go in the edit suite, and I'd edit my own stuff because I'm a control freak. So I'd see my face, and I thought I was being really charming and never understood why nobody exchanged phone numbers with me. But when I looked at my eyes on that tape, I looked like an animal about to pounce on its roadkill, you know, and these people were terrified. But of course, I didn't notice that because all I was doing, you know, all I was doing was, I was thinking, this better work, and then I got angry with the other person because they didn't go along with me or play by my rules or do it my way. I thought I was hiding it well, but clearly I wasn't. <clears throat> the interviews didn't work, and I thought, okay, this career is gonna dry out if I don't figure this out, because I needed to find some way to convey that it wasn't all about me, even though it was. <laughs> So um, I really blew it. I did this a, a long time ago. I blew it with, well, like, who gives a shit? Trump, Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, I should, I should have taken him out then. I wasn't thinking. It's an atrocity, really. The man has one nose hair, and then he winds it, winds it, winds it around his head. Like a Mr. Whippy. Anyway, I accidentally let... I let it show that I loathed him and that I was judging him the whole time. Uh, and so if I would have just been curious, you know, in him as a phenomena in front of me, I could have let him hang himself. 
But what happened was he, he smelled what I was doing pretty quick because, you know, he's a savage. And uh, so he threw me out of the plane when we were about 33,000 feet. Wasn't a good interview. Um, it did start to work, though. When, I don't know what time it is. Would somebody tell me if I'm going over? Because I think they come out with an electric jolt. It did work once when I was interviewed, by then I learned, and I was interviewing Hugh Hefner, and I knew every other interviewer comes to him because they see the stereotype, you know, so you got that smirk on your face. Now, one thing a person hates is when you narrow them down, you know, when they think they've got your number, because when we look at people, we actually hold them hostage to who we think they are, and we think our reality is everybody else's reality. So I threw away my notes with him, and I just like looked at what was front of, in front of me, and so I was interested in the man, not the image. And um, so gradually he started to tell me about his life, but not what you'd expect, and became, you know, um, he told me that when he was about 16, he went to the movies and he saw this actress on screen, and he fell in love with her. And his mother wouldn't let him go to the movies, so this was a really big occasion. Okay, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I felt like I, I, I understood what he meant for a second. Um, he fell in love with that image of that woman, so he's been trying to freeze that moment in time ever since, and so that's why the women stay the same age. Actually, he was hilarious, too. I asked him once, what did, what did he think was the greatest pickup line? And he said his greatest pickup line was, hi, I'm Hugh Hefner. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we bonded, and uh, so he let me stay in the mansion for five days, and um, usually I just get 10 minutes with these people, but you know, if you get them, you can, you can move in. And uh, <laughs> it's true, I used to have 10 minutes with Imelda Marcos, but then you know, if you flirt correctly, then eventually they'll let you move in. Of course, I knew she was gay, so I flirted a lot, and I wore really expensive jewelry to show her that I wasn't just an interviewer, I was richer than she was, so. <laughs> I borrowed it from Theo Fennell. Anyway, with him, I slept in the dorm with the bunnies, and we'd have pillow fights at night, every night, because <laughs> they were so smart. <laughs> you can see this on YouTube. Anyway, all I want to say is the, the real trump card, the only tool a, a leader, everybody's a leader, has to know is to turn on what we're God-given, which is curiosity. I mean, this is something we're hardwired for. Again, it's curiosity that makes us progress. Otherwise, we wouldn't evolve. It was curiosity that made us build fire, and then it made us try to figure out how to make tools. And these days, it makes us try to figure out how to put a bookshelf together from Ikea. We're still working on that. That's, a, that's in process. But being curious is the glue for great communication. And rapport hap And when rapport happens, it's like you're verbally doing a cha-cha with somebody else. You're not doing your monologue and then their monologue. It's the ignition key to great rapport. That's what rapport is. Because um, nothing is more flattering when somebody is being curious about you. I mean, how many after-dinner parties, how many dinner parties have you been at where you get a monologue from someone about their life and not once do they ask you about you? I know women who figure out who to date by counting how many times the guy says you or I. Anyway, I practice curiosity now. When I do go to dinner parties, I find the most boring person, and I'll sit next to him, and I'll try to bypass that and find out just, just staying curious about him. So I'll ask him things like, really, is it hard to keep a worm farm? <laughs> it's fascinating. Anyway, you practice it. It's like a muscle you have to practice. 
So uh, curiosity may not kill the cat, but it makes you an exceptional leader if you really are interested in people or learn how to be who work for you. Everybody wants to be heard and understood. That's how you succeed, not by pushing people to hit targets or draw bottom lines. Deep down, people don't really care about targets. They only really care if somebody likes them or not. So anyway, just to jump cut, I studied mindfulness. I'm not going to teach it to you now because i got two minutes and I'll look like a flake. But I was interested in how to self-regulate and how to kind of get some, uh, you know, we know so much cognitively. I thought, well, if I study the brain, maybe I can learn how to regulate my own chemicals because I'd spent too much, well, my whole bank account on shrinks. I thought I'm going to do it myself now. And I did the scientific research, and it had the best results. Otherwise, I would have hugged trees. So, um, so I hunted down the founder of mindfulness, and he was a professor at Oxford. He said, I said, don't give me the fluffy stuff. Just give me the meat. And he said, you'd have to get your master's at Oxford. So that's what I've been doing for the last three years. I think go to the horse's mouth. So what it does basically, it teaches you to be aware of what's going on in your mind. I know that sounds like, you know, to pay attention. People say, I pay attention. What's with it? Well, we don't. That, you know, take a piece of chocolate, you'll taste the first bite. By the third, your mind's in Bulgaria. Or you get in a car and you get somewhere and you think, how did I just get here? Or you look in a mirror and you think, did I just have a life? So with attention, it's a muscle, you have to learn to use it. But when you're thinking, it's not thinking about lovely things or you're not sitting on a gluten-free cushion. You're really observing the whole TV show called You. Because only if you know where your mind is will you make sure you don't pass it to the next guy. Even if you're not aware you're being aggressive, the other person picks it up no matter how hard you're smiling. They can sense what's really going on under the radar. If you know in your head what's going on, you won't get caught up in the conflict because our emotions are infectious. If somebody's, let's say, aggressive, the other person catches it, and he gets aggressive, and then there's no end. That's probably how you start wars. If you, so with a little mindfulness, you know once you hit that red light of high alarm, and then maybe the other person hits theirs, and it might be because of yours. You don't have to get into it. But the thing to stay clear is once you're both in that locking antlers mode, you're not going to do any more business. Really, one of you should raise a white flag and go, over, let's cool it for five minutes. Because in those moments, the first thing that goes down when you get a lot of adrenaline is your that where your memory is stored burns out. You won't remember anything. So you're just repeating stuff to this guy. Or you're just going back to the reptilian state, as we all love and know. Anyway, if you learn to regulate your emotions, you affect the next person, you help them regulate theirs. The climate of any organization is created by each individual's emotional state. If the leader is feeling anxious or stressed, believe me, it will ripple right through the whole company. I'll affect you, you'll affect the next guy. It works like neural Wi-Fi. I didn't make up that expression, I love it. Also, it's important to just be aware enough to know where is your tipping point. You don't have to tell anybody else. To notice when your work is becoming less productive and, or it's not making sense anymore or you've got that red mist in your, hair, in your head. You know that one where you're, you're gone. If you're able to read yourself, you'll know it's time to shut down the engine, which is your brain, and to reboot. It, we should know that if you have too many windows open, eventually your computer is going to crash. So when the computer has a glitch, we know to shut it down and reboot it, yet we don't do that with ourselves. We keep pushing and pushing. This is a real glitch in human nature until we hit burnout. And that's a great sign. People say, are you busy? You go, am I busy? I've had a quadruple bypass. I'm on life support. They go, that's fantastic. 
Like it's a sign of weakness if you're going to pull back a little bit. But here's the thing. If you learn to pull back and reboot, you'll be able, when you need the energy, to push into turbo, work longer and harder than the next guy. Only when you have the ability to pull in the reins, when you notice your mind is getting wild, will you be able to think creatively. If you're too stressed, you'll never, never be able to think out of the box. So the basic message I'm trying to give here is to know thyself. Socrates wasn't being flippant when he came up with that. So thanks very much. I have no idea how long I've talked for. <laughs> Was it two minutes? Thank you for listening to this Changeboard Future Talent podcast. To register for your place at this year's Future Talent Conference on March the 22nd in London, where we'll explore the theme Skills to Thrive in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, visit ftconference.changeboard.com. <laughs>